friends. I'm Amy Julia Becker. This is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of social division. In this season, we're talking about my book, White Picket Fences, and today's episode looks at the themes of Chapter 5, Banal Evils, with my guest, Kara Meredith. Well, I have here today my friend Kara Meredith, and Kara is the author of The Color of Life, A Journey Toward Love and Racial Justice. Kara, welcome to Love is Stronger Than Fear. Thank you. So excited to be here. Uh, so in addition to writing this wonderful book, which I'm going to say a little bit about in just a sec, Kara is also a teacher, a speaker, a coach, a mother to two boys, and I do want her to tell you about herself and about her family, but I want to start just by telling listeners how much I appreciated your book, The Color of Life. I was able to read an advanced reader copy a couple of years ago and offer an endorsement of it, and I'm going to read a couple of the sentences from my endorsement because it still sums up how I feel about this book. Uh, So I wrote, Kara Meredith's candid, thoughtful memoir of her own exploration of racial identity comes at an ideal moment. And even though it's a year and a half later, it is still an ideal moment for this book. Kara's story teaches us, but it does so through an invitation into her own thoughts and fears, her own mistakes and earnest reflections, her own journey of discovering herself and her history. I am so grateful for the gift of this book. And I am so grateful for your book. And um, for people who are listening today who are white and who are starting to think about race and racism in our country and about what it means to be a white person in the midst of all that, I think your story is a really helpful way to enter into those thoughts, the feelings they bring up. You also do a great job just of like in a storytelling way, giving some history and some data and some facts. Um, So I'm really excited to be uh, talking to you today and hopefully introducing you to some listeners and to some readers. And I thought we'd just start by getting you to tell us a little bit um, about yourself, but in the context of your family, since your family situation is so related to your book. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for um, inviting me to be here. It's a joy and a pleasure and an honor. So my family, uh, my husband, James, and our two sons, we live in Oakland, California, Um, And the book that I wrote, uh, The Color of Life, really, um, it's the story, it's the book I never intended to actually write. I I always thought I would, I don't know, I would write about being a woman in ministry um, or leaving ministry or just all these other things that nobody really wants to read about, at least it's not (laughs) from me. (laughs) Maybe some of your listeners are really stoked about that. But uh, after shopping, after writing a book like that and shopping it around to 39 agents and no one picking it up. I finally got the idea, uh, as in, you know, pounding against my head that this wasn't actually the book people wanted to read. (laughs) Um, So that being said, I married into um, a family of history. And um, on my third date, uh, upon meeting my husband, James, uh, he pulled out a stack of photography books and he, he opened up an earmarked page and he said, this is my father. And I write about this in the book, but uh, I, he opened to this picture and I remember staring at it going, wait a minute, your, your dad is Martin Luther King? There's <laughs> this huge picture of MLK, Dr. King on this, on this page. I was sitting here going, I know we met online, e-harm, but I, I missed something. How here. did this? And, yeah, how, how did this happen? <laughs> Information that could have been helpful. And, and he said, no, my dad is the man walking beside Dr. King. Um, and from there, I was introduced to a man named James Meredith. Uh, he was the first black man to integrate into the University of Mississippi in 62. And then four years later, led what's called the Meredith March Against Fear, 
which many historians consider the last greatest civil rights march. And so for my husband, James, uh, who is black, and for me, who identifies as white or of European American descent, really starting to date him and yeah. fall in love and eventually marry him was the impetus to discover uh, and learn about my own racial identity, to learn about whiteness, and a new lens of viewing history and theology and all of that. So uh, we are an interracial couple, we have mixed race children, um, and we also share a slice of history. And so when I talk about the book, it's, it's a spiritual memoir, but it's, a, it's a, an historical memoir. It's kind of this hybrid mix, yeah. um, but it's essentially about how the power of love helped me see color. Mm, and I, that's part of what I love about it, I think, is that you're able to bring in this very personal story that is really layered onto a larger American story in terms of both the intimacy of your relationship with your husband and your boys, but also that, yes, the fact that we live in a highly uh, racialized country and we have for so long, of course, affects your relationships and who you're becoming. So just in context, like when was that that you were on your third date and you uh, he pulled out his photo album and said, I need you to know who my dad is? Uh, that would be 11 years ago. Okay. Okay, so just for a little bit of context, great. Yeah, so we're 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 slightly still newbies, and yet we're, I and mean, I guess we've we've passed the decade mark of being together. So. There you go. That's awesome. Well, so for the past couple of weeks, I have or months, I guess now, I've been interviewing people, and I've been interviewing them in relation to my book, uh, White Picket Fences, and. The chapters that we've been talking about recently have been centered on me living in a small town in the South, in North Carolina, in the late 70s and early 80s, which was a functionally segregated um, society. And I, as a young kid, would not have had the words for racism, but I definitely did pick up on the fact that that's what was going on. So when I was 10, we moved to Greenwich, Connecticut, which was a almost entirely white town, obviously in the North. And I remember when I got there, I heard a lot of comments in middle school about how I had come from a racist place. And I really, although there was a bit of a like, oh, I don't want that to be true. But I also thought there was a lot of truth to that comment, like that they were not wrong when people said that. The same time, there were really no black or brown people in my context And so I was really puzzled by how all these kids talked about how I had come from a racist place as if I were now in a place that was not racist, essentially because of the absence of people of color. I mean, that's what it felt like. Um, And I was not convinced that the absence of black people in a community meant the absence of racism, although, of course, as a middle schooler, I had no way to make sense of that. I just was fairly certain there was a history to the place where I was. Um, And one of the things that really struck me in reading your book was reading about you also looking back on your childhood and trying to make sense of the experience or what felt like the lack of experience with race and racism as a child. So could you just give us a little bit of that background for you, both what you where you come from, um, what you learned as a kid, and then how you looked back on that as an adult. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, although my husband and I, our family lives in California now, and we've lived here for the most part off and on for almost 20 years, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so I grew up in the state of Oregon. That's where I spent my formative years. 
the rest of my uh, family all still lives up there. My parents um, and both of my siblings are in Oregon and Washington State. And so for me, as I really began to look back uh, on my childhood, uh, I, I began to say, okay, so what was the environment in which I was raised? Um, both the town I was raised in, the schools, the church, what, what, uh, what threads of, of belonging were there, uh, but also just what was celebrated yeah. and what did it look like? I mean, literally, literally just, just looking and trying to ask and answer every question. And in, I mean, across the board and in the fourth grade, that's when students learn about their state history. So I learned about Oregon state history. And I remember this one moment a few years ago upon my, writing my book, and I actually got back in touch with my fourth grade teacher, mm. uh, although she never answered the final email that I sent her, oh, no. <laughs> which, which was essentially, why didn't we learn about this piece? This piece being Oregon's racist history. And, yeah. you know, right now, Portland, Oregon is right. uh, making national news yeah. uh, because of continued riots and protests uh, around uh, civil unrest and Black Lives Matter and that which... Uh, followed George Floyd, the death of George George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And yet a lot of what's also starting to be written about is the irony of the widest large city in America uh, embracing this narrative. And part of embracing the narrative is embracing the history of it. So Oregon uh, was established by Midwestern settlers. The first governor of Oregon later became the first uh, uh, governor of the state of California, this man named Peter Burnett. And so in it, even though Oregon on um, the outside or uh, from the outside looking in was established as a free state, it was the only state in the union that was established with exclusionary laws written into the state constitution. And those exclusionary laws were for or towards African-Americans. They were toward back then what was the slave population. And so it was, it was established as a whites only state. And the three main laws that were written into the state constitution, one was eradicated uh, within, I think, eight or 10 years. Uh, so wait, go back, Lash just law. when, when oh. was Oregon established? Like what, what, what uh, time 18, period are we talking about? So 1852. Uh, okay, so we're I kind of in like it the lead up to 1850s. Uh-huh. 1850s, so lead up to the Civil War. 1852, I believe it was established as a, or maybe 1848. I should look back through my book. but <laughs> Somewhere in that time frame. As, yeah, there we go. Make me sound good. But it was established <laughs> first as the Oregon Territory, which is a, which was which really went through parts of Idaho and Washington. Um, and then when it actually uh, became established as a state, that's when these, in both of those periods, both for the territory and for the state, exclusionary laws were written in. So the law black. and the law basically said if if you are not white, you can't live here. So there were different laws. The first one, which uh, which was on the books or for I, th- I think it was less. I think it was eight years. It was not on for very long. Was called the Lash Law, uh, which which allowed for whippings or lashings. Okay. For folks of black and brown descent, for African Americans, but also the indigenous population. Okay. Which is yeah. so. I mean, which is you just go. Are you, are you, I mean, I'm not going to cuss on your show here, but right. are you kidding me? Like, yeah. like I, I can name you the Native American tribes that were, you know, that were the, on whose land we inhabited. Right. And so it, uh, it said folks have three years to get out and if they don't, they will be lashed. Okay. So that, but then the lash law specifically, uh, which, which made for 39 whippings, just like Jesus, 39 whippings. 
uh, to the point of death was, th that one was gotten rid of, but other laws were written into the state constitution that didn't allow for African Americans to come in, or if they did, again, they had that time frame that they had to get out. And one of the laws wasn't even fully taken off the books until the centennial celebration, which was in 1976. Wow. So right before you and I were born. And even though it wasn't in practice, right. at that point, you think about the Great Migration that happened the 1920s through the 1940s. You have, uh, which book is it? The Great Migration book? The Warmth of Other Suns. The Warmth of Other Suns by Susan Wilkerson is a phenomenal book about yeah, the Great Migration, but it talks about that particular time period. And so there's a reason that she, in it, she's looking at the Northeast, at the at New York specifically, at the Midwest, Chicago, yep, Chicago specifically, and at Los Angeles specifically. And there's a reason why she's not writing about the Pacific Northwest. Mm. And that's one of those reasons. Um, and we could certainly also, we, could, we can look into Seattle, we can look into Washington. There are similarities there as well. But there was, by that time, word had gotten out to the Black population that it was not a safe place to establish. Um, and numbers show that now. I mean, there, uh, there are certainly communities of Black folks uh, who, are in, who are in Oregon and yet due partially to that, but also due to uh, the effects of gentrification and other issues. There's been a continual pushing out. So I have two questions. One is, and you might not know the answer to this, but historically, were there other states that were established with the same types of exclusionary laws? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, again, Peter Burnett, the governor, he only stayed in Oregon for a short time before coming to California. So there were similarities that were, California did not then technically have exclusionary laws, but that's where you see exclusionary laws that certainly happened across the board um, when it came to interracial marriage, mm -hmm. uh, when it came, um, you know, interracial marriage, mixed race children, and, and for sure when it came to uh, property laws. So uh, California, for instance, along the interracial marriage piece, and I read about this quite a bit in my book as well, for obvious reasons, but California had laws against interracial marriage until I, I think through the 50s. I mean, sure. it was literally this mind-blowing thing. And I think about the state of California. Um, right. And through, I mean, yes, there are very white communities everywhere. There are pockets. Um, but there are also uh, large numbers of people of color. We're um, one of the, we have one of the greatest rates of interracial marriages in the U.S. Yeah. Um, I think we're, I think our state, I was looking last week, I think we're at 26%. Hmm. So the fact that, again, 1950s, I'm not a math major, so I can't really do that. <laughs> but that was what, 70 years ago? Yeah. Uh, that that was only taken off the books. So it's right. not like California has been this wildly progressive place that has always believed in, you know, equality for all or practiced right. it. Right, right. And so going back to you in fourth grade and beyond, I mean, you may not remember exactly what your fourth grade teacher said in fourth grade about Oregon, but I think I remember from your book that you were surprised to find this out, right, as an adult. Like, this is not something you grew up knowing. And what were your assumptions about your state when it came to race and racism? Oh, absolutely. So I... What I recall, again, I, I don't recall learning anything about this side of history. I recall learning and celebrating uh, Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea. Mm -hmm. um, I recall playing the Oregon Trail game when I um, yeah. finished my work in Me class too. and being able to play it on the one <laughs> class computer that was in the back room. It was like the greatest thing not to then die of malaria. 
So I don't think that I probably learned about um, Oregon's history. I mean, I want to say I'm sure it wasn't until at least my late 20s, if not my early 30s. Um, And so, I mean, was that up until the time in which I met my husband? Potentially. I mean, I think there was certainly a blindness that existed and has existed in my life in which when I thought about Oregon, it was, it was this peaceful Mecca. And sure, we had diversity. We had the skaters and we had the stoners and we had mm. the um, preps and we had the athletes. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about how I described like my high school experience. And yet, right. yeah, that super diverse amongst all of those mostly white people, you right, know? Right, um, right. And I mean, to its credit, the town that I grew up in is, is becoming increasingly diverse. Uh, there's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a refuge city for immigrants. So there's, uh, there is a huge African population yeah. that, is, that, is, that has established itself in the town that I grew up in that has been, you know, I remember having one, one or two peers as a child who were Black. And, and that has certainly increased the number right. of, uh, of those who are of African descent. So you just mentioned like a blindness to history. And I'm curious if there are a couple other moments of whether you would call it blindness or uh, that emerged as you have gone through this process of thinking about yourself as living in a racialized society where you're like, oh, my gosh, I was blind to that reality until this moment. Like, are there a couple other stories you can tell from that type of experience? Absolutely. And, and I will say that I think the blindness continues to exist. I think that um, that's something that for all of us, if we're really honest, uh, the, the more we learn and grow, the more we realize that this story isn't about us and we and the scales are torn from our eyes, whether that has to do with our own racialized identities um, or other areas. If it hasn't been our experience, we may not be privy to it. One of the stories I tell in my book specifically from childhood, I remember being in the fourth grade again. And here there were 600 students and we were all sitting in the gymnasium for an all school Mm -hmm. assembly. And the teacher got up there, or excuse me, the principal got up there and he said, okay, we are, we're going to lead you in a chant. And so the student leaders got up alongside our principal and they all shouted into the microphone, we are colorblind. And then all 600 of us, grades K through six at the time, we shouted back in unison, we are are colorblind. Wow. And the thing is, is that that was completely normal to me. Yeah. And I think that was completely normal to so many of us, not just to those of us who um, identify as white or of European American descent, but across the board in, especially in churches and in schools, we adopted as a result of that, which we got wrong in the civil rights movement, we adopted a colorblind rhetoric. So I think about that mistake, I certainly, I, before becoming a writer, I was a high school English teacher, and then I was in ministry, full-time ministry for eight years. And I, I think about the students that I taught. I was working mostly with high school students throughout both of those scenarios for 12 years total. And, you know, I think about when I was a teacher, how, uh, yes, we absolutely pulled out African-American writers during the month of February. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, throughout the year, uh, we were just reading the classics, you know, and you could put classics in, in quotes here. But right. uh, it was it, it just I, I didn't even think about the fact that I was doing a disservice both to me and to them by uh, really just digging into the voices and the thoughts and the narratives and the experiences. And yes, the super great literature, which you write about in your book, we yeah. write about. 
but mostly from a white male perspective. Right. So, I mean, those are two examples. Yeah, no, those are great uh, examples. Yeah. Um, and I know you do have more in your book, but we'll leave that for people to read about. But I'm also really glad you mentioned Colorblind because I want to talk about that a little bit. I'm thinking about your title, The Color of Life. And for people who haven't seen the cover of your book, there's a very almost a whimsical quality to it, right? It looks like it's been written in crayon. There's lots of colors. But there's also, I think, a depth to that title that hints at some of these other themes we've already brought up as far as what does it mean to think about color. So you've got this old term from our history in terms of speaking about people who are black in the South as colored. You've got people of color now, right? A a more modern term. And then you've got this concept of being colorblind, which for a time period was seen as like a progressive, positive way to see the world. So I think that's my first question is like, why did your teachers when you were in fourth grade, think this is like, we are on the cutting edge to be yelling like we are colorblind. But then why is that problematic? And then within all of that, what difference has it made in your own life to see color, to not to be colorblind? So, you know, give us a little bit of kind of the history of that concept of colorblindness, but also why it's a problem and what it means to do it differently. Yeah. So as I, as I talked about a little bit, uh, there, there was a movement, like legitimate movement that happened in mostly within churches and schools following the civil rights movement and essentially what it, what it said. And, and so we can then dig into it. Jamar Tinsby digs into this a little bit, certainly in his book, The Color of Compromise, yeah. um, which side note, we have the same publisher and uh, we, we figured out like, I think a month before his book release that our books were one word apart. We were like, Whose idea was this? Right, exactly. Although I'll say on this show, since we I just interviewed him, yeah. uh, so we're going to go from the color of compromise yeah. to the color of life. And yeah. it's just a flow. We're just going from yes. one to the next. Yes. And I love Tamar. <laughs> we, we did an event together last year, but we were both like, how did this happen? Me? Like, right. how, how did we miss this? Uh, so when, when it comes to this colorblind movement, how do we then make better what we've gotten wrong? And so that's where we said, okay, we saw race, but we saw race too much. So now we're going to swing the pendulum to the other side and we are not going to see race. Certainly within well, the- and can I interrupt for just a sec? I also yeah. think it was, and the way we see race is according to positive and negative. Mm-hmm. And so if we stop seeing non-white people in negative terms, Mm-hmm. then it is positive. But essentially, we're seeing them as the same as white people. So we're not seeing color, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's yeah. some of how that thinking goes. Do you think oh, that's absolutely. accurate? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, and thank you for filling that in. It's, I mean, it's one of those that, so for you and I, I think we're relatively the same age. And no matter where we grew up, in, within a U.S. American context, uh, this this is what most of us did grow up with. Right. It, again, it mostly within our churches and our schools. And, and so uh, when I think about what is wrong with that, you know, what does it mean to celebrate the identities and who we really are? I, it, I, I write about this in the book as well, but um, one of my favorite stories from scripture is, uh, or passages from scripture is John 4, when Jesus interacts with a Samaritan woman. And I spent nearly two years with that passage. I kept going Mm -hmm. back and I was like, what is it about this one passage that I love? 
but it, there was this phrase that finally came to me, the particularities of personhood. And so when and as we look at Jesus' model of interacting with that woman, he, he um, celebrated the particularities of her personhood as a woman, as a, as a Samaritan woman. So Samaritans in that day were considered biracial as someone who had a history or a past, um, as someone who was still living in, in, in the midst of what, you know, what would, what some would call sin, yeah. um, not having it all together. Um, and, and so for me, there was a, a point in which that story kind of turned around and it's like, wait a minute, this wasn't actually about Jesus coming in and saving the day. And maybe some interpret it to be that, um, so that she then left her life of sin. But what if we looked at the bulk of this passage, not the very last line, but we looked at the bulk of it in which he is lifting up the, the particularities of who she is, hmm. the particularities of her personhood, all those different pieces that make her her. And when it comes to all of us, it's no different. Uh, I think many of us who are white, we tend to say or believe that uh, we are uh, uh, non-color. Um, mm. that ours is a neutral, bland existence and that we don't have a history. And yet mm. all of us, no matter who we are, no matter how we identify, whether we identify as people of color or as white, we have a people from whom we come from. Yeah. And, and, this, and this heritage, both of our ancestors, but also of what those people represent, that's part of what makes us us. Uh, so whether we're talking about that in terms of race or culture or ethnicity or color, um, and yes, all of those things are different facets. We're not talking about the same thing when we use words like that, but, but that's part of the um, celebration of who we are as humans. It's not just our personalities, but it is also what we look like on the outside and where we've come from. So, yeah, so that, I mean, one of the things that comes up uh, for me, if we're talking about color, is this idea of whiteness. And I'm curious of what to think about for you. Has there been an evolution in any way in thinking about what it means to be a white person or to think about whiteness? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a huge part of the invitation that's going on right now in our country hmm. uh, when it comes to all this civil unrest is um, an invitation for all of us, but especially those of us who identify as white to wrestle with whiteness. And um, just as race is a social construct, uh, the, the fact is, though, is that, um, is that whiteness has been, whiteness is what our country was established on. And so these tenets of whiteness, these tenets that allow um, and make room for, some of, for systems in which some people who look like you and me thrive and or are benefited, and some people who do not look like you and me um, do, not buy, do not thrive or, or do not benefit. So when it comes to whiteness, I think it's so easy to it's so easy to say, well, well, what is whiteness? Yeah. But especially when and as we are white, it can be so easy not to see because we're the ones who are absolutely benefiting from the very system of whiteness. I did have a friend who talked to me about writing white picket fences and he's like, It's like you're a fish and you decided to write about the water. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's just like, I can't believe you're going to try to do that, you know, but I'm curious to hear from you, like, because it is, I think it's really hard when you're swimming in the water to be able to describe the water because it's just where you live. And yet, you know, when a human being is thrown into the water, you can describe it because that's not where you live all the time. Right. Like, and so for if, so I'm curious to hear more about when you talk about like the tenets of whiteness, what would be some of those tenets? What are some of the things you've identified as like, oh, this is particular to 
whiteness. It's not just how human beings do life. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, somewhat in answer to your question, I was looking for a specific section in my book, uh, which spells it out perfectly. But uh, when it comes to whiteness, this is where it, this, this might kind of answer what we were talking about. When it came to conversations of race, sometimes it felt like need not apply have been stamped across our foreheads. Mm. We didn't engage with problems of race because it didn't affect us on a personal level. It wasn't our battle to fight. Issues of race didn't apply to us because we were white and white after all isn't a color. White is a bland, neutral tone, the lone hue in a rainbow palette that doesn't fit into a category for it is a category in and of itself. That, that's whiteness right there. Whether at school, at church, or in the workplace, when it came to conversations of race or discussions of racial diversity, our voices didn't count. It didn't matter what we thought because it wasn't about us. Race was for people who had color in their skin and not for white people who looked like us. So part of it, I read that, and although the word whiteness, um, I interjected there with a, that's whiteness. Right. Although whiteness is not specifically, um, the, the word whiteness is not specifically mentioned in that paragraph, uh, whiteness is the construct. Whiteness is all of those things that keep, keep some people in and some people out. Whiteness um, is the belief that race isn't a conversation that we have. Whiteness is the belief that, uh, that race is only for people of color. Whiteness is, again, the belief that, uh, that, that those of us who are white do not have a, a history and or a story to tell. Whiteness is the mm. system that we benefit from. So whiteness, I mean, yes, we could look up on Google and come up with a specific name, sure. but whiteness is also, or a specific definition, but whiteness also, uh, that, is, that is the world in which um, we, we live, many of us. And, um, and, and that world then looks different for those of us who are white, as opposed to those uh, who, who are people of color. Yeah. And that's something I've thought a lot about. I um, have a friend who is an African-American woman and she read White Picket Fences and started off in a Facebook group of mostly white women to discuss it. And a few days into that book group, she wrote me a kind of private message and said, I just want to let you know, I'm going to quietly leave the group. Um, and I, I'm not going to explain this to everyone, but I want to explain it to you. And the what she said was, I'm really for white people processing their whiteness. I do not need to be in the room when it happens. And I thought she put it so perfectly that there is a need to figure out what it means to be white or to have grown up in what we are calling right now whiteness, a set of assumptions, a set of cultural values, and a set of assumptions about what is normal as opposed to particular to my family or to my culture, right? Like that this is somehow supposed to apply to everyone or be the standard that everyone lives by. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about what it means and how we create spaces to process being white in a productive, like a constructive way that doesn't contribute to greater harm, but actually helps with healing and being a part of that. Because I think there are a lot of white people who feel like I'm pretty new to all of this. And therefore, I feel like I'm late to all of this. But I also, I don't want to be a part of the problem anymore. Like I really want to do the work, but oh my gosh, there's a lot of work to do. Where do I start? How do I do this? And how do I do it in a way you know, I'm going to get my language wrong. I'm, I don't want to be offensive, but I'm probably going to be, you know, what do I do? Yeah. I mean, I think this is, uh, this is such a huge conversation, obviously that's happening now. Uh, 
uh, I was just in dialogue a week or so ago um, about whether or not we should start an affinity group or a white affinity group, literally, mm-hmm. at my children's school in order to help white parents process. But would yeah. that be further alienating folks in I on their journey? Totally and, and you and I have question. talked about this. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and I think this is, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. I, um, a lot of work that I do uh, on the side, in addition to writing, a lot of work that I do is, is engaging in conversation. And I hold a belief that this conversation best happens, and, and this is in a public sphere, certainly, but the conversation best happens when, between both white folks and people of color. So a lot of the work that I do, especially in helping equip parents and caregivers and talking to kids about race, that's happening with and alongside different colleagues of color. And that is my heart. And that is um, Mm. what I think at least initially folks need to see also. But, but I am, I I hold one belief amongst many. Uh, So when it comes to digging into this, yes, I think that this sometimes happens or starts on individual levels. When you read, I mean, I just finished last week. uh, So you want to talk about race. Uh, so I just finished this a couple of days ago. I don't know if you read this one yet. Oh no, I but, have not. Um, it's actually I have it flagged, oh, but I have. I've, oh I've my read, gosh, I've read some great articles that she's written, but yeah. And I'm not exactly. I, I need to look up how to say her name. Uh, Ijeoma Olu, um, I believe, is maybe how you say it. Okay. Um, and I, I apologize for not having Googled that myself. <laughs> but I would like to go back through and find how many times she says Google it. Because truly, I think that's where um, there is a burden that is happening uh, to people of color in particular, where all of a sudden, especially in social spaces, where it's like, you know what, you you can find this answer. So is the onus of responsibility when it comes to digging in, is it both on the individual and um, on the group as a whole? Yes. I, I, I think there is so much we can do as individuals as far as reading and listening to podcasts and um, changing the shows we watch and starting to dig in there. But in answer to your question, as far as how this happens, I, uh, I'm i a huge fan of Be the Bridge with Latasha Morrison. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the things she does well is uh, she equips both white folks and people of color um, to have the conversation and that this conversation is happening. Um, although those conversations, again, are not specific around whiteness. And, and I think I, I would be curious if she were to come on the show, what she would have to say. Yeah. So I'm, I'm answering and not answering the question all at the same time. I, I guess I, I think it's a both and. And, uh, you know, just as I, I, I was telling you before the show, that's a, this is what I'm thinking about my book being about. But this is part of the tension yeah. that, that we live in a both and world. And so what is our responsibility, both as individuals and collectively? Did you all make a decision? Like, did you make a decision about the affinity group? So no, we, we left it up in the air. Yeah. Like it, because this affinity group started with a conversation on helping talk to, on equipping parents and caregivers to talk about race. And uh, so the group itself, we live in a town that is very diverse. Our school, our children's school is very diverse. Uh, it's almost, it's, although gentrification is affecting it, it's, it's almost a quarter, a quarter down the road, a quarter uh, African-American, quarter Latino, quarter Asian, quarter white. Um, and obviously we're leaving out um, uh, indigenous, indigenous population uh, within that, which I think is, is, is maybe, I think in the 4% range. Okay. Uh, so yeah. it's not super huge, but so that the group that we spoke to was very diverse. And yeah. so what does it mean then in follow-up? I think you could, uh, you could talk to Austin Channing Brown and yeah. Austin and I have the same agent and, or used to have the same agent. And at one point, uh, you know, Austin, I w- we were sitting down a conversation with the three of us and she said, 
you know what? Sometimes you get a, you got to get all the white people in one room and you got to talk to the white people and you got to get all the people of color in one room and you got to talk to the people of color. And the people who are talking to the white people are the white people who have been there. And the people who are talking to the people of color are the people of color who have been there. Right. And you have honest conversations with each group. Yeah. And you know, it's so for, to me, she said, maybe Kara, that's your role. Right. And I haven't, I haven't quite landed there. You know, I, I see the work that Robin D'Angelo, who's kind of celebrated in this space, I see the work that she is doing. And I have learned a lot from Robin D'Angelo. And I have also questioned Robin D'Angelo because mm-hmm. there's a centering on whiteness and on white folks. And I, mm-hmm. and I just go, okay, so if we're centering so much in order to not cause more pain, right. she was on an episode with Krista Tippett. And that's what yeah. she said. She said, all of my work that I do now is to not cause more pain. Right. But at what point are we potentially causing more pain if we're only talking or speaking to people who look like us? And I do think this is also where both, I mean, you know, we are not going to have the conversation now in part because I just had it with Jamar about the church's, the problems the church has had in addressing these issues. My hope though, is that the church actually has an opportunity to bring hope and healing into this space in a way that, you know, I similarly have um, some appreciation and some critique of Robin D'Angelo's work. And I think the possibilities for understanding identity, for understanding love, justice, hope, celebration, forgiveness, true reconciliation, all of those things that there's a potential in the work that faith communities in general, I think I I mentioned the church just because we do have an African-American church tradition that I think has a tremendous amount to offer everyone in understanding what it means to actually address real pain, real injustice, and real harm in a way that leads towards healing. And obviously we have the spiritual resources available to all Christians and to some degree to many people of faith, different resources. So that is one place I find hope, even though I think we have a long way to go in that area. I am curious just as we start to um, wind up this conversation, I wish we could talk longer, but I'm grateful for your time. And I'm curious. Okay, so you've been talking, the book's been out for a year and a half. Uh, You've traveled all over. You've co-hosted a podcast with Ashita Moore talking about some of these themes. I'd love for you to actually mention that and tell us a little bit about it. You've been interviewed a gazillion times. I'm also curious just what you have learned. Like how have you've, you lived the story, you wrote the story, and then you put the story into public view and people got to ask you about it and challenge you on it and push you to reflect on, I would imagine, even more who you are and who your family is. So uh, what what has it been like for the past year and a half to put this out into the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think anyone has asked me that before. So <laughs> I don't I don't have the answer in the back of my head. It has been a wild ride. Hmm. That's that's for certain. And in December, I spoke at an event uh, with something called the organization nonprofit called the uh, Peninsula Resource Conflict Center. And they host this annual event. Uh, They do a lot of conflict uh, work, obviously, uh, within uh, schools and churches and different organizations. And so they, they host this annual event and they bring to the stage a handful of speakers and we each have 10 minutes to share. And, and so the woman organizing, she said, I want you to speak about what you've learned. So I guess I have thought about this one more time before, <laughs> one previous time, but uh, I ended up writing this speech and it, it was, it was, the whole point was to, it was kind of a mini Ted talk 
um, just as you've done with Q before. But the, the point was to get up there and talk for 10 minutes about what I had learned as a white woman um, mm. in this work. Everyone else speaking, the other five speakers were all women of color. Okay. And the talk was called, It's, it's Not About Me. Mm. Um, and I kept thinking about, I, I don't, was it, was it from a song? Uh, but you think this song is about yes, me? Yes, yes. It's a Joni Mitchell song, I think. <laughs> yes. And so I kept, and maybe I knew that for the talk, but I kept referencing that. That's what I kept coming back to. And when I was originally preparing um, to, to launch my book, I had someone very wise say to me, you know, Kara, it's, it's great that you've written a book. Snaps. Bravo. <laughs> you know, like super to the freaking duper. <gasps> but the book that you've written is different. And if you get up there and celebrate you and celebrate the work that you did, you're missing the point. Um, so from the very beginning, the, the hope was to engage with friends and people of color, uh, not, not specifically around my book, but about the issues that stem from it. And so mm -hmm. that's what we were inviting, converse, uh, inviting communities into. Um, and, and that was wildly successful. I mean, I think yeah. there were probably, I think there were 42 conversations. I could not believe your calendar. I saw your calendar and it, it, I was like, I'm tired. I got to go home just from looking at your calendar. <laughs> I'm tired too. Uh, but you know, it was, um, it was such an honor, uh, to engage. And yeah. I remember at one point when black woman, she, uh, we were preparing and spent some time preparing and, and she just said, Kara, I'm going to be nice when I say this, but she said, you need, you need to realize how much time you're taking up. And I realized right now that I'm on your podcast and I just keep talking and opening up my mouth, but I've had to realize how much space I take up. Mm. I've had to realize that it is so easy to center this song about me. Yeah. And yet, if and when I do that, I, I'm missing the point. And this song is not about me. I mean, mm. I think going back to what we were slightly talking about with Robin D'Angelo, I, I think part of my part of why I have a hard time is that when and as if we're only digging into her work, then we're only digging into tenets of whiteness that are only about us. And so we're missing the picture. And so, because we're missing that it's not about us, right? We're, we're missing that there like are other voices. There's, so there's um, both a, obviously just like a self-centeredness that you're exposing there, but there's also just a like, and we're missing out too. Yeah. Um, in the sense of, uh, I mean, back, back to your yeah, title, the color of life, like the expansiveness of the beauty and the diversity uh, that is available to all of us in relationships of love, of mutual self-giving if only we can see beyond ourselves um, and our homogeneity, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's um, that's really beautiful. And I appreciate that so much. That's a really helpful, helpful answer to the question you weren't prepared to answer. So thank you. Um, well, so just at, in closing, tell uh, listeners, where can they find out more about you? Uh, presumably online. Yeah. Uh, so my book, The Color of Life, is available wherever books are sold. Um, I do want to give a specific shout out, though. Uh, right now, you can connect with me on my website, uh, karameredith.com. And on my website, I'm uh, also, um, I'm, I've, I've got extra stock of books uh, from canceled spring events due to <laughs> the Rona. Uh, so I'm trying to get rid of those and you can buy a book through my website and every, for every book that's sold a hundred percent of the profits go to an organization called the Swan dream project. Uh, it's, uh, which you can find them on Instagram hashtag, or excuse me, uh, at, uh, the Swan dream project. 
but there's a woman named Aisha. She's a black ballerina and her mission is to change the narrative, um, mm. especially for young black girls when it comes to this. So hundred percent of proceeds from books sold from my website, not from those other sites. Go to that. Uh, otherwise you can connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at Kara Meredith writes. And then I'm on Twitter, not as often at Kara 54. Awesome. We will put all of those uh, pieces of information in the show notes. And I do hope that you all will order from Kara's website, a book um, because the color of life is really worth reading. Um, And I saw, I saw a review of it where someone said you can read this in a weekend and think about it for six months. And I loved that because it is a really easy read in the sense of you are an accessible writer. It's a story that you're telling and you want to know what happens next. But there's also just a depth to what you have to share, which um, is lasting. I first read this book because it was before it came out. So probably almost two years ago. um, And it has really stuck with me, the vividness of what you write about and the way you share your story. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for sharing your time with us here today. And uh, yes, listeners, go find Kara Meredith online. Thanks so much for listening to Love is Stronger Than Fear. We'll be sure to note all those references in the show notes. And I would love for you to share this episode, subscribe to this podcast, and of course, give it a quick rating or review wherever you find your podcasts. And then even more people can benefit from these conversations. Thanks for being here and I look forward to seeing you again next week.